The following is a conversation with Ray Dalio. He's the founder, co-chairman, and co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates, one of the world's largest and most successful investment firms that is famous for the principles of radical truth and transparency that underlie its culture. Ray is one of the wealthiest people in the world, with ideas that extend far beyond the specifics of how you made that wealth. His ideas that are applicable to everyone are brilliantly summarized in his book, Principles. They are also even further condensed on several other platforms, including YouTube, where, for example, the 30-minute video titled How the Economic Machine Works is one of the best educational videos I personally have ever seen on YouTube. Once again, you may have noticed that the people I've been speaking with are not just computer scientists, but philosophers, mathematicians, writers, psychologists, physicists, economists, investors, and soon, much more. To me, AI is much bigger than deep learning, bigger than computing. It is our civilization's journey into understanding the human mind and creating echoes of it in the machine. That journey includes the mechanisms of our economy, of our politics, and the leaders that shape the future of both. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter. Alex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. This show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. I personally use Cash App to send money to friends, but you can also use it to buy, sell, and deposit Bitcoin. Most Bitcoin exchanges take days for a bank transfer to become investable. Through Cash App, it takes seconds. Cash App also has a new investing feature. You can buy fractions of a stock, which to me is a really interesting concept. So you can buy $1 worth, no matter what the stock price is. Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. I'm excited to be working with Cash App to support one of my favorite organizations that many of you may know and have benefited from called FIRST, best known for their FIRST robotics and Lego competitions. They educate and inspire hundreds of thousands of students in over 110 countries and have a perfect rating on Charity Navigator, which means the donated money is used to maximum effectiveness. When you get Cash App from the App Store or Google Play and use code LEXPODCAST, you'll get $10 and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, which again is an organization that I've personally seen inspire girls and boys to dream of engineering a better world. And now here's my conversation with Ray Dalio. Truth, or more precisely, an accurate understanding of reality is the essential foundation of any good outcome. I believe you've said that. Let me ask an absurd sounding question at the high philosophical level. So what is truth? When you're trying to do something different than everybody else is doing, and perhaps something that has not been done before, how do you accurately analyze the situation? How do you accurately discover the truth, the nature of things? Almost the way you're asking the question implies that um, truth and newness have nothing, are almost at odds. Almost. And I just want to say that I don't think that that's true, right? So what I mean by truth, truth is, 
uh, you know, what's the reality? How does the reality work? And so if you're doing something new that has never been done before, which is exciting and I like to do, the way that you would start with that is experimenting on what are the realities and the premises that you're using on that and how to stress test those types of things. I think what you're talking about is instead the fact of how do you deal with something that's never been done before and deal with the associated probabilities. And so I, I think in that, don't let something that's never been done before stand in the way of you doing that particular thing you have a, a because almost the only way that you understand what truth is is through experimentation and so when you go out and experiment you're going to learn a lot more about what truth is but the essence of what i'm saying is that when you take a look at that use truth to find out what the realities are as a foundation do the independent thinking do the experimentation to find out what's true and change and keep going after that so i think that the way that when you're thinking about it the way you're thinking about it that almost implies that you're you're letting people almost say that they're reliant on what's been discovered before to find out what's true and what's been discovered before is often not true right conventional right. view exactly. of what tr- what is true is very often wrong it'll go in ups and downs and you know i mean there are fads and okay this thing it goes this way and that way and so definitions of truths that are conventional are not the thing to go by how do you know the thing that has been done before that it might succeed it's to do whatever homework that you have in order to try to get a foundation and then to go into worlds of not knowing and you go into the world of not knowing, but not stupidly, not naively, you know, you go into that world of not knowing and then you do experimenting and you learn what truth is and what's possible through that process. I describe it as a five-step process. Yes. The first step is you go after your goals. The second step is you identify the problems that stand in the way of you getting to your goals. The third step is you diagnose those to get at the root cause of those. Then the fourth step is then now that you know the exact root cause, you get you design a way to get around those, and then you um, follow through and do the designs you set out to do, and it's the experimentation. I think that what happens to people mostly is that they try to decide whether they're going to be successful or not ahead of doing it, mm-hmm. and they don't know how to do the process well because the nature of your questions are along those lines like, how do you know? Well, you don't know. But a practical person who is also used to making dreams happen knows how to do that process. I've given personality tests to shapers. So the person, what I mean by a shaper is a person who can take something from visualization. They have an audacious goal, Mm -hmm. and then they go from visualization to actualization, building it out. That includes... Uh, Elon Musk, I gave him the personality test. I've given it to Bill Gates and I give it to many, many uh, such shapers. And they know that process that I'm talking about. They experience it, which is a process essentially of knowing how to go from an audacious goal, but not in a ridiculous way, not a, a dream. And then to do that learning along the way that allows them in a very practical way to learn very rapidly as they're moving toward that goal. So the the call to adventure, the adventure starts 
not trying to analyze the probabilities of the situation, but uh, using what instinct? How do you dive in? So let's it let's is, talk about it. It is it, it is being a it's simultaneously being a dreamer and a realist. It's to know how to do that well. The pull comes from a pull to adventure, for whatever reason. Uh, I can't tell you how much of it's genetics and how much it's environment, but there's a early on, it's exciting. That mm-hmm. notion is exciting. Being yes. creative is exciting. And so one feels that. Then one gets in the habit of, of doing that. Okay, how do I know? How do I learn very well? And then how do I imagine? And then how do I experiment to go from that imagination? So it's that process that one, one, and then one, the more one does it, the one more, the better one becomes at mm-hmm. it. You mentioned shapers, Elon Musk, Bill Gates. What, who are the shapers that you find yourself thinking about when you're constructing these ideas, the ones that define the archetype of a shaper for you? Well, as I say, a shaper for me is somebody who, comes up with a great visualization, um, usually a really unique visualization, and then uh, actually builds it out and makes the world different, changes the world in that kind of a way. So when I look at it, Mark Benioff with Salesforce, Chris Anderson with TED, Mohammed Yunus with Social Enterprise and Philanthropy, Jeffrey Canada and Harlem Children's Zone, there are uh, all domains have shapers who have the ability to visualize and make extraordinary things happen. What are the commonalities in some of them? The commonalities are, first of all, the excitement of something new, that call to adventure, and then again, that practicality, the capacity to learn. It, the capacity then, um, they're, they're able to be in many ways full range. That means they're able to go from the big, big picture down to the detail. Mm-hmm. So let's say, for example, uh, Elon Musk. He, he describes he gets a lot of money from selling PayPal, his interest in PayPal. He said, why isn't anybody going to Mars or outer space? What are we going to do if the planet goes to hell? Right. And how do I? How are we going to get that? And nobody's paying attention to that. He doesn't know much about it. He then reads and learns and so on. Says, I'm going to take, um, okay, half of my money and I'm going to put it in there and I'm going to do this thing. And he learns and blah, 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 blah. And he's got creative. Okay, that's one dimension. And so he, he and gave me the um, uh, um, keys to his car with his one just early days in, in Tesla. Mm. And he then points out the details. Okay, if you push this button here, it's this, the detail. That, so he's simultaneously talking about the big, the big, big, big picture. Okay, when does humanity um, going to abandon the planet? But he will then be able to take it down into the detail so he can go, or let's call it helicoptering. He can go up, he can go down and see things at those types of perspectives. And then you've seen that with the other shapers as and well. And that's a common thing that they can do that. Another important difference that they have in mind is how they deal with people. I mean, meaning there's nothing more important than achieving the mission. And so what they have in common is that there's a test that I I give these 
personality tests because um, they're very helpful for understanding people. And so I gave it to all these uh, shapers. And one of the things in workplace inventory test is this test, and it has a category called concern for others. What it, it, it's a, They're all having concern for others. This includes Mohammed Yunus, who invented microfinance, social enterprise, impact investing, as Mohammed Yunus received the Nobel Peace Prize for this, the Congressional Medal of Honor, uh, one of the um, uh, fortune determined, one of the 10 uh, greatest um, entrepreneurs of our time. He's mm-hmm. built all sorts of businesses to give back money and social enterprise, a remarkable man. He has nobody that I know practically can have more concern for others. Um, he lives a life of a saint. I mean, a very modest lifestyle, and he puts all his money into trying to help others. And he tests low on what's called concern for others because what it really, those the questions under that are questions about conflict to get at the mission. So they all, Jeffrey Canada, who changed Harlem Children's Zone and developed that to take children in Harlem and get them well taken care of, not only just in their education, but their whole lives. Harlem, him also, concern for others. What they mean is that they can um, see whether those individuals are, are performing at a level, that an, an extremely high level that's necessary to make those dreams happen. So when you think of, let's say, Steve Jobs was famous for being you know, difficult with people and so on, and I didn't know Steve Jobs, so I can't speak personally to that, but his comments on, do you have A players? And if you have A players, if you yeah. put in B players, pretty soon you'll have C players and yeah. so on. That is a common element of them holding people to high standards and not letting anybody stand in the way of the the mission. What do you think about that kind of idea? Sorry to pause on that for a second, that the A, B, and and C players and the the importance of, so when you have a mission to really only have A players and be sort of aggressively filtering for that. Yes, but I think that they're all different ways of being A players. And I think... And what a great, a great team. You have to appreciate all the differences in ways of being a players, uh, okay? Yes. That's the first thing. And then you always have to be super excellent, in my opinion. You always have to be really excellent pe- with people to help them understand each other themselves and, and get in sync with them about what's true about them and their circumstances and how they're doing so that they're having a fabulous personal development experience at the same time as you're dealing with them. So when I say um, that they're all different ways, this is one of the then qualities. You, you asked me what are the qualities. So yes. one of the third qualities mm-hmm. that I would say is to know how to deal well with your not knowing and to be able to get the best uh, expertise so that you're a great orchestrator of different ways so that the people who are really, really successful, unlike most people believe that they're successful because of what they know, they're even more successful by being able to effectively learn from others and tap into the skills of people who see things different from them. Brilliant. So how do you, when that, that personality being, first of all, open to the fact that there's other people see things differently than you, and at the same time have supreme confidence in your vision? Is there um, just the psychology of that? Do you see a tension there between the confidence and the open-mindedness? And now, it's funny because 
I think we grow up thinking that there's a tension there, right? right. That there's a confidence, and and the more confidence that uh, you have, there's a tension with the open-mindedness and not being sure. Okay, um, mm-hmm. confident and accurate are almost negatively correlated to many people. Mm -hmm. They're extremely confident Mm -hmm. and they're often inaccurate. And so I think one of the greatest tragedies of people is not realizing how those things go Mm -hmm. together because instead it's really that by saying, um, I know a lot and how do I know I'm still not wrong? And how do I take that the best thinking uh, available to me and then raise my probability of learning. All these people think for themselves, okay? I mean, meaning they're smart, but they take in like vacuum cleaners. They take in ideas of others. They stress test their ideas with others. They assess what comes back to them in the form of other uh, uh, thinking, and they also know what they're not good at and what other people who are good at the things that they're not good at, they know how to get those people and be successful all around because nobody has enough knowledge in their heads. And that, I think, is one of the great differences. So the reason my company has been successful uh, in terms of this is because of an idea meritocratic decision-making, a process by which you can get the best ideas. You know, what's an idea meritocracy? An idea meritocracy is to get the best ideas that are available out there and to work together with other people in the team to achieve that. That's an incredible process that you describe in several places to arrive at the truth. I apologize if I'm romanticizing the notion, but let me linger on it. Just having enough self-belief. You don't think there's a self-delusion there that's necessary, especially in the beginning. You talk about in the journey, maybe the trials or the abyss. Do you think there is value to deluding yourself? I think what you're calling delusion is a bad word for uncertainty, okay? So, I mean, in other words, because we keep going back to the question, how would you know, and all of those things. No, I think that delusion is not going to help you, that you have to find out truth, okay? To deal with uncertainty, not saying, listen, I have this dream, and I don't know how I'm going to get that dream. I mentioned in my book, Principles, and described the process in a more complete way than we're going to be able to go here But what happens is I say, you form your dreams first and you can't judge whether you're going to achieve those dreams Mm. because you haven't learned the things that you're going to learn on the way toward those dreams, okay? So that isn't delusion. I wouldn't use delusion. I think you're overemphasizing the importance of knowing whether you're going to succeed or not. Get rid of that, okay? <laughs> if you can get rid of that and yes. say, okay, no, I can have that dream, but I'm so realistic in the notion of finding out. I'm curious. I'm a great learner. I'm a great yes. experimenter. Along the way, you'll do those experiments, which will teach you more truths and more learning about the reality so that you can get your dreams. Because if you still live in that world of delusion, okay, and you think delusion's helpful, no, the delusion isn't, don't (laughs) confuse delusion with not knowing. Yes, but nevertheless, so if we look at the abyss, we can look at your own that you describe it's difficult psychologically for people. So in, m- many people quit, many people choose a path that is more comfortable 
I mean, that the um, the heartbreak of that, you know, breaks people. So if you have the dream and then there's this cycle of learning, setting a goal and so on, what's your value for the psychology of just being broken by these difficult moments? Well, that's that that's classically the defining moment. It's almost like um, evolution taking care of, okay, now you're yeah. you you crash, you're in the abyss. Oh my God, that's bad. And then the question is, what do you do? And it sorts people, okay? And that's what that's it's <laughs> okay. like a, some people get off the field and they say, oh, I don't like this and so on. Yeah. And some people learn and they have the, and they have a metamorphosis and it changes their approach to learning. It, the number one thing it should give them is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You should take an audacious, um, dreamier guy who wants to change the world, crash, okay. And then come out of that crashing and saying, okay, I can be audacious and scared that I'm going to be wrong at the same time. And then how do I do that? Because that's the key. When you don't lose your audaciousness and you keep going after your big goal, and at the same time you say, hey, I'm worried that I'm going to be wrong, you gain your radical open-mindedness that allows you to take in the things that allows you to go to the next level of being successful. So your own process, I mean, you've talked about it before, but it would be great if you can describe it because our darkest moments are perhaps the most interesting. So your own in, uh, with the prediction of the of another depression. Economic depression. Econ- yes, I apologize, economic depression. Can you talk to what you were feeling, thinking, planning yeah. strategizing at those moments yeah that that was that was my biggest moment okay building my little company this is in 1981 82 yes. i had calculated that american banks had given a lot more money to uh lent a lot more money to latin american countries than those countries were going to pay back and that they would have a debt crisis and that this had sent the economy tumbling and that was an extremely controversial point of view. Um, then it started to happen, and it happened in Mexico defaulted in August 1982. I thought that there was going to be a um, an economic collapse that was going to follow because there was a series of the other countries. It was just playing out as I had imagined, and that well couldn't have been more wrong. That was the exact bottom in the stock market because central banks ease monetary policy, blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And I was very publicly wrong and, and all of that. And I lost money for me and I lost money for my clients. And I was, um, I only had a small company then, but I, um, I had to, these were close people. I had to let them go. I was down to me as the last person. I didn't have it. I, I was so broke. I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to pay for my family bills. Very painful. And at the same time, I would say it definitely was uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me. Maybe the best thing for him happened to me because it changed my approach to decision-making. It's what I'm saying. In other words, I kept saying, okay, how do I know whether I'm right? How do I know I'm not wrong? It gave me that. And uh, and it didn't give up my audaciousness because it, it, I was in a position, what am I going to do? Am I going to go down back, put on a tie, go to Wall Street and, be, and just do those things? No, I can't bring myself to do that. So I'm at a juncture. How do I deal with my risk and how do I deal with that? And it told me how to deal with my uncertainties. And that taught me, for example... 
um, number of techniques. First, to find the uh, smartest people I could find who disagreed with me and to have quality disagreement. I learned the art of thoughtful disagreement. I learned how to produce diversification. I learned how to do a number of things. That is what led me to create an idea meritocracy. In other words, person by person, I hired them, and I wanted the smartest people who would be independent thinkers who would disagree with each other and me well so that we could be independent thinkers to go off to produce those audacious dreams because you have to be an independent thinker to do that and to do that not independently of the consensus, independently of each other, and then work ourselves through that because who knows whether you're going to have the right answer and by doing that, then that was the key to our success. And the things that I want to pass along to people, the reason I'm doing this podcast with you is, um, you know, I'm 70 years old, and that is a magical way of a, achieving success. If you can create an idea meritocracy, it's, it's so much better in terms of achieving success and also quality relationships with people. But that's what that experience gave me. So if we can linger on a little bit longer, the idea of an idea meritocracy, it's fascinating, but especially because it seems to be rare, not just in companies, but in society. So there's a lot of people on Twitter and public discourse and politics and so on that are really stuck in certain sets of ideas, whatever they are. So when you're confronted with a, with an idea that set, that's different than your own about a particular topic, what kind of process do you go through mentally? Are you arguing through the idea with the person? Sort of present is almost like a debate, or do you sit on it and consider the world sort of empathetically? If this is true, uh, then what does that world look like? Does that world make sense and so on? So what's the process of considering those conflicting ideas for I, you? I'm gonna answer that question, but after saying first, impl almost implicit in your question, is it's not common, okay? What's common produces only common results, okay? So don't <laughs> yes. judge yes, anything that is good based on whether it's common, because yeah. it's only gonna give you common results. If you want unique, you have a unique approach, yes. okay? And so that art of thoughtful disagreement is the, is the capacity to hold two things in your mind at the same time. Mm the gee i think this makes sense and then saying i'm not sure it makes sense and then try to say why does it make sense and then to triangulate with others so if i'm having a discussion like that and i work myself through and i'm not sure um then uh, I, I have to do that in a good way so i always give attention for example Let's start off, what does the other person know relative to what I know? So if a person has a higher expertise or things, I'm much more inclined to ask questions. I'm always asking questions. If you want to learn, you're asking questions. You're not arguing, okay? You're taking in. You're assessing when it comes into you. Does that make sense? Are you learning something? Are you getting epiphanies and so on? And I try to then do that if, if the conversation um, it, as we're trying to decide what is true and we're trying to do that together and we see truth different, then I might even call in uh, another really smart, capable person and try to say what is true and how do we explore that together and you go through that same thing. So I would, I said, uh, I, I describe it as having open-mindedness and assertiveness at the same time, mm -hmm. that you can simultaneously 
be open-minded and take in with that curiosity and then also be assertive and say, but that doesn't make sense. Why would this be the case? And you do that back and forth. And when you're doing that kind of back and forth on the topic like the economy, which you have, to me, perhaps I'm naive, but it seems both incredible and incredibly complex, the economy, the uh, trading, the transactions, that these transactions between two individuals somehow add up to this giant mechanism. You've put out a 30-minute video. You have a lot of incredible videos online that people should definitely watch uh, on, on YouTube, but you've put out this 30 minute video titled How the Economic Machine Works. That is probably one of the best, if not the best video I've seen on the internet in terms of educational videos. So people should definitely watch it, especially because it's not that um, the individual components of the video are somehow revolutionary, but the simplicity and the clarity of the different components just, makes you, there's a few light bulb moments there about what, how the economy works as a machine. So as you described, there's three main forces that drive the economy, productivity growth, short-term debt cycle, long-term debt cycle. The, the former productivity growth is how valuable things, how much value uh, people create, valuable things people create. The latter is uh, people borrowing from the, their future selves to hopefully create those valuable things faster. So this is an incredible system to me. Maybe we can linger on it a little bit, but you've also said what most people think about as money is actually credit. Total amount of credit in the US is $50 trillion. Total amount of money is $3 trillion. That's just crazy to me. Maybe, maybe I'm silly, maybe you can educate me, but that seems crazy it gives me just pause that the human civilization has been able to create a system that has so much credit. So that's a long way to ask, um, do you think credit is good or bad for society? That system of that's so fundamentally based on credit. I think credit is great, even though people often overdo it. Credit is that somebody has earned money yeah. And, uh, you know, and what happens is they lend it to somebody else who's got better ideas and they cut a deal. And then that person with the better ideas is going to pay it back. And if it works well, it helps resource allocations go well, providing people like the entrepreneurs and all of those. They need capital. They don't have capital themselves. And so somebody's going to give them capital and they'll give them credit and along those lines. Then what happens is, it's not managed well in a variety of ways. So I did a, another book on principles, principles of big debt crises that go into that. And it's free, by the way. I put it free online um, wow. on wow. as a PDF. Uh, so if you go online and you look uh, principles for big debt crises under my name, you can download it in a PDF or you can buy a print book of it. And it goes through that particular process. And so you always have it overdone in always the same way. Everything, by the way, almost everything happens over and over again for the same reasons, okay? So these debt crises all happen over and over again for the same reasons. They get it overdone. In the book, it explains how you identify whether it's overdone or not. They get it overdone. And then you go through the process of making the adjustments according that, and then and it explains how they can use the levers and so on. If you didn't have credit, 
then you would be sort of everybody sort of be stuck. So um, credit uh, is is a good thing, but it can easily be overdone. So now we get into the what is money? What is credit? Yeah. Okay, you get into money and credit. So if you're holding credit and you think that's worthwhile, keep in mind that the central bank, let's say, it can print the money. What is that promise? They, you, you have an IOU, and the IOU says you're going to get a certain number of dollars, let's say, or yen or euros, and that is what the IOU is. And so the question is, will you get that money, and and what will it be worth? And then also you have a, a, a government which is a participant in that process because right. they want they are on the hook they owe money, and then will they print the money to make it easy for everybody to pay? So you have to pay attention to those two. I would suggest, like you you recommend to other people, just take that thirty minutes, and it and it and it comes across pretty clearly. But the, my conclusion is that of course you want it. And even if you understand um, it and the cycles well, you can benefit from those cycles rather than to be hurt by those cycles. Because I don't know the way the cycle works is somebody gets over indebted, they have to sell an asset. Okay, then I don't know. That's when assets become cheaper. How do you acquire the asset? It's a whole process. So again, maybe a, another, another dumb question, but... Uh... There are no such things as dumb questions oh, to me. There you go. But what is money? <laughs> so you've mentioned, you know, credit and money. It's uh, another thing that if I just zoom out from an alien perspective and look at human civilization, it's incredible that we've created a thing that's not that only works because currency, because we all agree it has value. So. I guess my question is, how do you think about money as this emergent phenomenon? And what do you think is the future of money? You've commented on Bitcoin, other forms. What do you think is uh, its history and future? How do you think about money? There are two things that money is for. It's a medium of exchange and it's a storehold of wealth. Yes, that's that that so money, you know, the so you could say something's a medium of exchange and then you could say, is it a storehold of wealth? OK, so those the, and money is that vehicle that is those things and can be used to pay off your debt. So when you have a debt and you provide it, it pays off your debt. So that that's that process. And it's, uh, uh, I apologize to interrupt, but it only can be a medium of exchange or store wealth when everybody recognizes it to be a value. That's right. Right. And so you see in the history and you, around the world and you go to places, um, I was in um, an island in the Pacific in which they had as money these big stones. And literally, they were taking a boat this 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 big carved stone and they were taking it from one of the islands to the other and it sank the 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 piece of this big stone piece of money that they had and it went to the bottom and they still perceived it as having value so that it was even though it was in the bottom and it's this big hunk of rock the fact that somebody owned it they would say oh i'll i'll own it for this and that i've seen uh beads in different places shells 
converted to this and mediums of exchange. And when we look at what we've got, you're exactly right. It is the notion that if I give it to you, I can then take it and I can buy something with it. And that's, so it's a matter of perception. Okay. And then we go through then the history of money and the vulnerabilities of money. And what we have is um, there's through history, there's been two types of money. Those that are claims on something of value, mm-hmm. uh, like the connection of to gold or something. That's right. Um, that that would be, and or they just are money without any connection. Which and then we have a system now, which is a fiat monetary system. So that's what money is. Then it will last as long as it's kept of value, and it works that way. So let's say central banks, when they get in the position of like they owe a lot of money like we have in the case it's increasingly the case and they also are a bind and they have the printing press to print the money and get out of that and you have a lot of people might be in that position then you can print it and then it could be devalued in Mm -hmm. there and so history has shown forget about today history has shown that no currency um, has la- ha- every currency has either ended as being a currency been, or devalued as a currency over periods of time, long periods of time. So it evolves and it changes, but everybody needs that medium ex- of exchange and everybody needs that storehold of wealth. So it keeps changing what is money over a period of time. But so much is being digitized today. And there's this ideas that are based on the blockchain of Bitcoin and so on. So if all currencies, like all empires come to an end, what do you think will, do you think something like Bitcoin might emerge as as a common store of value, uh, store of wealth and a medium of exchange? The problem with Bitcoin is that it's not uh, an effective medium of exchange. Like it's not easy for me to go in there and buy things with it. And then it's not an effective storehold of value because it has a volatility that's based on speculation and the like. So you, you, it's not a very effective saving. That's very different from um, Facebook's pro of a stable value currency, which would be effective as both a medium of exchange and a storehold of wealth. Because if you were to hold it and it, the way it's linked to number of things that it's linked to would mean that it could be a very effective storehold of wealth. And then you have a digital currency that could be a very effective medium exchange and storehold of wealth. Mm-hmm. That So in my opinion, some digital currencies are likely to succeed more or less based on that ability to do it. Then the question is, what happens? Mm-hmm. Okay, what happens is, do central banks allow that to happen? I really do believe it's possible to get a better form of money that central banks don't control, okay? A better force of money that central banks don't control. But then um, that's not yet happened. And we also have to, and so they've got to go through that evolutionary process. In order to go through that evolutionary process, first of all, governments have got to allow that to happen which is to some extent a threat to them in terms of their power, and and that's an issue. 
And, and then you have to also build the confidence in all of the components of it to say, okay, that's going to be effective because I won't get uh, in, I won't have problems owning it. So I think that digital currencies have a um, have some element of potential, but there's a lot of hurdles that are going to have to be gotten over. I think that it'll be a very long time, possibly never, but anyway, a very long time before we have that, let's say, get into a position that would be uh, in a uh, effective means relative to gold, let's say, if you were to think of that, because mm-hmm. Gold has a track record, you know, of thousands of years <laughs> right. in uni- all across countries. Yeah. It has its mobility. It has the ability to put it down. It has certain abilities. It's got disadvantages relative to digital currencies, but but central banks will hold it. Like there's central banks that worry uh, about others, you know, the other countries' central banks might worry about whether the U.S. dollar is going to print enough mm-hmm. that. And so the thing they're going to go to is not going to be the digital currency. The thing they're going to go to is is gold or gold. something else, some other currency. They got to pick it. And so I think it's a long way to go. But you think it's possible that one day we don't even have a central bank because of the a, a currency that doesn't that's uh, cannot be controlled by the central bank is the primary currency, or does that seem um, very uh, unlikely? It, it, uh, um, it would be very remote possibility (laughs) or very long in the future. Got it. Again, maybe a dumb question, but romanticized one. When you sit back and you look, you describe these transactions between individuals, somehow creating uh, short-term debt cycles, long-term debt cycles, this productivity growth. Does it amaze you that this whole thing works? That, that there's however many million, hundreds of millions of people in the United States, globally over 7 billion people, that this thing between individual transactions, it just, it works. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it amazes me. Like I go, I go back and forth between being in it and then I think like, how did a credit card, how is that really possible? I'm still used, <laughs> I look up credit card, I put it on, the guy doesn't know me. Yeah, it, it, it's all strangers. Uh, uh, okay, we're making the digital entries. Is that really secure enough and that, that kind of thing? And then it goes back and it goes this and it clears and it all happens. And it, what I marvel at that and those types of things is because of the, the capacity of the human mind to create abstractions that are mm. true. You know, it's imagination. And then the ability to go from one level and then if these things are true, then you go to the next level. And if those things are true, then you go to the next level. And all those miracles that we almost become common, it's like when I'm flying in a plane right. or when I'm looking at all of the things that happen. When I get communications in the middle of I don't know, Africa or Antarctica, and we're communicating in the ways where I see the face on my iPad of somebody, my grandkid in someplace else, and I look at this and I say, wow, yes, (laughs) it it all amazes me. So while being amazing, do you have a sense, the principles you described, that the whole thing is stable somehow also? Or is this, are we just lucky? (laughs) So the, the principles that you described are those describing a system 
that's is stable, robust, and will remain so, or is it a lucky accident of our early history? My area of expertise is economics and markets, so I get down to like a real nitty-gritty. Yes. I can't tell you whether the plane is going to fall out of the sky because of its particular fundamentals. I don't know enough about that, but it happens over and over again, and so on. (laughs) It gives me faith, okay, so without me knowing it. In the markets and the economy, I know those things well enough, in a sense, to say uh, that by and large, um, that structure is right, what we're seeing is right. Now, whether there are disruptions and it has effects that can come, not because that structure is right, and I believe it's right, but whether it can be um, hurt by, let's say, connectivity or journal entries. They could take all the money away from you through your digital entries. There's all sorts of things that can happen in various ways that means that that money is worthless or the system falls. But from what I see in terms of its basic structure and those complexities that still take my breath away, I would say knowing enough about the mechanics of them, that doesn't worry me. Have you seen disruptions in your lifetime that really surprised you? Oh, all the time. This is one of the great lessons of my life is that many times I've seen things that um, I, I was very surprised about and that I realized almost all of those I was surprised about because they just they were just the fir- first time it happened to me. They didn't happen in my lifetime before. Mm-hmm. But when I researched them, they happened in other places or other people's lifetimes. So for example, I remember uh, 1971, the dollar, there was no such thing as a devaluation of a currency. It didn't experience it. And with the dollar was connected to gold and I was watching events happen and then you get on and any, that definition of money all of a sudden went out the, the window because it was not tied to gold and then you have this devaluation. And so, and then, or the first oil shock or the second oil shock mm-hmm. or so many of these things. And what I, but almost always, I realized that they, um, when I looked in history, they happened before. (laughs) They just happened in other people's lifetimes, which led me to realize that I needed to study history and what happened in other people's lifetimes and what happened in other countries and places so that I would have timeless and universal principles for dealing with that thing. So I, oh yeah, I've been, you know, the implausible happening, but it's like a, a one in a hundred year storm. Right. Okay. Or it's, or, uh, they've happened before. Yeah. They have happened. Just not to you. Let me talk about, uh, if we could about AI a little bit. So we've, uh, Bridgewater associates, uh, manage about $160 billion in assets. And, artificial intelligence systems, algorithms are pretty good with data. What role in the future do you see AI play in analysis and decision-making in this kind of data-rich and impactful area of investment? I'm gonna answer that not only in investment, but I give a more all-encompassing rule uh, for AI. As I think you know, for the last 25 years, uh, we have taken 
our thinking and put them in algorithms. And so we make decisions. The, the computer um, takes those criteria, algorithms, and they put them, and they're in there and it takes data and they operate as an independent decision maker par in parallel with our decision making. Yes. So for me, it's like there's a chess game playing um, and I'm a person with my chess game and I'm saying it made that move and I'm making the move and how do I compare those two moves? So yes. we've done a lot, but let me give you an, a rule. If the future can be different from the past and you don't have deep understanding you should not rely on AI. Okay? Those two things. Deep understanding of... The cause-effect relationships that are leading you to place that bet in anything. Okay? Anything important. Let's say if it was do surgeries, and you would say, how do I do surgeries? I think it's totally fine to watch all the doctors do the surgeries. You can put it on, uh, uh, take a... Um, a digital camera and do that, convert that into AI algorithms that go to ro robots mm -hmm. and have them do surgeries. And I'd be comfortable with that because if it'll do the, if it keeps doing the same thing over and over again, and you have enough of that, that would be fine. Even though you may not understand the algorithms because you're, if the thing's happening over and over again, and you're not asking the future would be the same, yes. that appendicitis or whatever it is will be handled the same way the surgery. That's fine. However, what happens with AI is for the most part is it takes a lot of data and it, um, with a high enough sample size, and then it puts together its own algorithms. Okay, there are two ways you can come up with algorithms. You can either take your thinking and express them in algorithms, or you can say, put the data in and say, what is the algorithm? When you, that's machine learning. Yeah. And when you have machine learning, um, it'll give you equations which quite often are not understandable. Yes. If you would try to say, okay, now describe what it's telling you, it's very difficult to describe, and so they can escape understanding. And so it's very good for doing those things that could be done over and over again if you're watching and you're not taking that. But if the future is different from the past and you have that, then you're, if the future is different from the past and you don't have deep understanding, you're going to get in trouble. And so that's the main thing. As far as AI is concerned, AI... Uh, and uh, let's say computer replications of thinking in various ways. I think it's particularly good for processing, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but but the the notion of what you want to do is better most of the time determined by the human mind. The, what are the principles? Like, okay, how should I raise my children? Mm -hmm. It's going to be a long time before AI. You're going to say uh, it has a good enough judgment to do that. Who should I marry? No. Uh, all of those things. Maybe you can get the computer to help you, but if you just took data and do machine learning, it's not going to find it. If you were to then take one of my criteria for um, any of those questions and then say, put them into an algorithm, you'd be a lot better off than if you took AI to do it. But by and large, the mind should be do, used for inventing and those creative things. Um, and then the computer should be used for processing because it could process a lot more information a lot faster, a lot more accurately, and a lot less emotionally. 
So any notion of thinking in the form of processing type thinking Mm -hmm. should be done by a computer. And anything that is in the notion of doing that other type of thinking should be uh, operating with with the brain, operating in a way where, you know, you can say, ah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, the process of reducing your understanding down to principles is kind of like the process, the uh, the first one you mentioned, type of AI algorithm, where you're encoding your expertise. You're trying to program, write a program. The human is trying to write a program. How do you think that's attainable? The process of reducing principles to a computer program, or when you when you say when you write about when you think about principles is there still a human element that's not reducible to an algorithm? My experience has been that almost all things, including those things that I thought were pretty much impossible to express, I've been able to express in algorithms, but that doesn't constitute all things. Mm. So you 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 can express far more than you can imagine you'll be able to express. So I use the example of, okay, it's not, how do you raise your children, mm-hmm. okay? You will be able to take it one piece by piece. Okay, how, how, at what age, what school? And the way to do that, in my experience, is to uh, take that, and when you're in the moment of making a decision, or just past making a decision, to take the time and to write down your criteria for making that decision in words, okay? That that way you'll get your pro, your principles down on paper. Mm-hmm. I created an app um, online called, it's right now just on uh, the iPhone, it'll be an, yeah, on tried, Android. Yeah, I tried getting it on Android, come and, on no, now. It, it'll be- Let's get it on Android. It'll be, it, in a few months it'll be on Android. Awesome. But it has an app in there that helps people write down their own principles. Because yes. this is very powerful. So when you're in that moment where you've just, you're thinking about it and you're thinking your criteria for you know choosing the school for your child or whatever that might be, and you write down your criteria or whatever they are, those principles, you write down and you, you that will at that moment make you articulate your principles in a very valuable way. And if you have the way that we operate, that you have easy access, so the next time that comes along, Mm -hmm. you can go to that, or you can show those principles to others to see if they're the right principles, you will get a clarity of that principle that's really invaluable in words, and that'll help you a lot. Then, But then you start to think, how do I express that in data? And it'll shock you about how you can do that. You'll, You'll form an equation, that will show the relationship between these particular parts and then the essentially the variables that are going to go into that particular equation and you will be able to do that. And you take that little piece and you put it into the computer Mm -hmm. and then take the next little piece and you put that into the computer. And before you know it, you will have a decision-making system that's of the sort that I'm describing. So you're almost, making an argument against a, a, uh, an earlier statement you've made. You're convincing me. At first you said, there's no way a computer could raise a child, essentially. 
but now you've described making me think of it. If you have that kind of idea, uh, meritocracy, you have this rigorous approach that Bridgewater takes on investment and apply it to raising a child. It feels like through the process you just described, we could as a society arrive at a set of principles for raising a child and encode it into a computer. That originality will not come from machine learning. The first time you do, so that the original, yes. That's what I'm referring to. But eventually as we together develop it and then we can automate it. So That's the, why I'm saying the processing yes. can be done by the computer. So we're saying the same thing, we're not right. inconsistent. We're saying the same thing, that the processing of that information and those algorithms can be done by the computer in a very, very effective way. You don't need to sit there and process and try to weigh all those things in your equation and all those things. Mm -hmm. But that notion of, okay, how do I get at that principle? And you're saying you'd be surprised uh, yes, you how can much do you that. can express. That's right. You can do that. So this is where uh, I think you're going to see the future. And you're, right now, we you know go to our devices and we get information to a large extent, and then we get some guidance. We have our GPS and the like. In my opinion, principles, 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 principles. I want to emphasize that you write them down. You've got those principles they will be converted into algorithms for decision-making. And they're going to also have the benefit of collective decision-making because right now individuals, based on what's stuck in their heads, are making their decisions in very ignorant ways. They're not the best decision-makers. They're not the best criteria, and they're operating. When those principles are written down and converted into algorithms, it's almost like you'll look at that and follow the instructions, yes. and it'll give you better results. Medi medicine will be m much more like this. You can go to your local doctor, and you could ask his point of view and, and whatever, and he's rushed, and he may not be the best doctor around, and you're going to go to this thing and give that same information or just automatically have it input in that, and it's going to tell you, okay, here's what you should go do, mm -hmm. and it's going to be much better than your local doctor. And that the, the converting of information into intelligence, mm -hmm. okay, intelligence is the thing. We're coming out with, um, um, again, I'm 70, and I want to pass all these things along. So um, all, all these tools that I've found need to develop all over these periods of time, all those things, I want to make them available. And what's going to happen as you, they're, they're going to see this, they're going to see these tools uh, operating much more that way. The idea of converting data into intelligence. Intelligence, for example, on what they are like. Right. Or, or what are your strengths and weaknesses? Intelligence on who do I work well with under what circumstances? Personalized. Intelligence. We're going to go from what are called systems of record, mm -hmm. which are a lot of, okay, information organized in the right way, to intelligence. And we're going to, that tr that'll be the next big move, in, in my opinion. And so you will get intelligence back. And that, that intelligence comes from reducing things down to principles into... That's how it happens. So what's your intuition, if we look at future societies, do you think we'll be able to uh, reduce a lot of the 
the details of our lives down to principles that would be further and further automated? I think the real question hinges on people's emotional emotions and irrational behaviors. I think that there's subliminal things that we want, hmm. okay? And then there's cerebral, you know, conscious logic. Oh, yes. And the two often are at odds. So uh, there's almost like two yous in you, right? Yeah. And um, so let's say, what do you want? And um, your mind will answer one thing, your emotions will answer something else. So when I think about it, I think emotions are, I want inspiration, I want love is a good thing, mm -hmm. being able to have a good impact, but it is in the reconciliation of your subliminal wants and your intellectual wants so that you really say they're aligned. Yes. And so to do that in a way to get what you want. So irrationality is a bad thing if it, if it means that it doesn't make sense in getting you what you want, but you better decide which you you're satisfying. Is it the lower level you, emotional, subliminal one, or is it the other? But if you can align them. So what I find is that by going from my, you, you experience the decision, do this thing subliminally. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I want. It comes to the surface. Mm -hmm. I find that if I can align that with what my logical me wants and do, do the double, double check between them and I get the same sort of thing, that that helps me a lot. I find, for example, meditation is one of the things that helps to achieve that alignment. It's fantastic for achieving that alignment. Mm -hmm. And often then I also wanna not just do it in my head, I wanna say, does that make sense, help you? And so I do it with other people mm -hmm. and I say, okay, well, let's say I want this thing and whatever, does that make sense? And when you do that kind of triangulation, mm -hmm. your two use, and you do that with also the other way, then um, you certainly wanna be rational, right? But rationality has to be defined by those things. And then you discover sort of new ideas that uh, that drive your future. So it's always, you're always at the edge of the set of principles you've developed. You're doing new things always. Right. So that's where the intellect is needed. Well, and the inspiration. The inspiration <laughs> is needed to do that, right? Like, what are you doing it for? So it's what, what the is excitement, that thing? What is that the adventure, thing? What's, the curiosity, the hunger. What's, uh, if you can be Freud for a second, what's in that subconscious? What, what's the thing that drives us? The call I, I think you can't generalize of us. I think different people are driven by different things. There's not a common one, right? So uh, like if you would take the shapers, I think it is a combination of subliminally, it's a combination of excitement, curiosity is there a dark element there is there is there demons there's their fears is there in your sense something most dark of the that ones drives them? most of the ones that i'm dealing with i have not seen that yeah. I, I i see the what i really see is who if i can do that <laughs> that would be the most dream and then the act of creativity and you say ooh. so excitement is one of the things curiosity yes. is a big pull okay and then tenacity you know okay at the, to do those things but definitely emotions are entering into it then there's an intellectual component of it too okay it may be empathy it may can i have an impact mm -hmm. can i have an impact 
the desire to have an impact. That's an emotional thrill, and but it also it has empathy. And then you start to see spirituality. By spirituality, I mean the connectedness to the whole. You start to see people operate those things. Those tend to be the things that you see the most of. And I think you're going to sh- shut down this idea completely, but uh, there's a notion that some of these shapers really walk the line between sort of madness and genius. Do you think madness has a role in any of this? Or do you still see Steve Jobs and Elon Musk as fundamentally rational? Yeah, there's a continuum there. And what comes to my mind is that genius is at, at often at the edge, of, in some cases, imaginary genius mm. is at the edge of insanity. And it's almost like a radio that I think, okay, if I can tune it just right, it's playing right. But if I go a little bit too far, it goes off. Okay. And so you can can see this. Um, Kay Jameson was studying bipolar. What it shows is that, you know, that's definitely the case because when you're going out there, that imagination, whatever, is that the, can be near the edge sometimes doesn't have to always be so let me ask you about automation that's been a part of public discourse recently what's your view on the impact of automation of whether we're talking about ai and more basic forms of automation on the economy in the short term and the long term do you have concerns about it as some do or do you think it's overblown it's not overblown. I mean, it's a it's a giant thing. It'll come at us in a very big way in, um, in the future. We're, we're right at the edge of even really accelerating it. It's had a big impact, and it will have a big impact. And it's a two edged sword because um, it'll have uh, tremendous benefits, and at the same time, it has profound benefits in employment and distributions of wealth because. I, the way I, I think think about it is there are certain things human beings can do, and over time we've uh, evolved to go to almost higher and higher levels, mm-hmm. and now we're almost like we're at this level. You know, it used to be your labor, mm-hmm. and you would then do the, your labor, and okay, we can get past the labor. We got tractors and things, and you go mm-hmm. up, 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 and we're up over here and, and uh, up to the point in our minds where, okay, um, anything related to mental processing, the computer can probably do better and we can find that. And so other than almost inventing, um, you're at a point where um, the, the machines and the, the automation will probably do it better. And, and that's accelerating and that's a force and that's a force for the good. And at the same time, it, what it does is it displaces people in terms of employment and changes and it produces wealth gaps and all of that. So I think the real issue is that that has to be viewed as um, a national emergency. In other words, I think the wealth, the wealth gap, the, in, the income gap, the opportunity gap, all of those things, that force is creating the problems that we're having today, a lot of the problems the, the great polarity, the disenfranchised, e- dis, uh, not equal, not anything approaching equality of education, all of these problems, a lot of problems are coming as a result of that. And so there, it needs to be viewed really as 
an emergency situation in which there's a good work, good plan um, worked out for how to deal with that effectively so that um, it's dealt with effectively. So because it, it's, it's it, 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 you know, it's good for the average, it's good for the impact, but it's not good for everyone and it creates that polarity. So it's got to be dealt with. Yeah, and you've talked about the American dream and that that's something that all people should have an opportunity for and that we need to reform capitalism to give that opportunity for everyone. Let me ask on, a, on a, one of the ideas in terms of safety nets that support that kind of opportunity. There's been a lot of discussion of universal basic income amongst people. So there's Andrew Yang who's running on that, he's a political candidate running for president on the idea of universal basic income. What do you think about that, giving $1,000 or some amount of money to everybody as a way to give them the the padding, the freedom to sort of take leaps, to take the call for adventure, to take the crazy uh, pursuits? Before I get right into the my thoughts on universal basic income, I want to start with the, the notion that opportunity, education, development, creating equality so that you people say there's equal opportunity and, 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 and is the most important thing. And then to find out what is the amount? How are you going to provide that? What, where, what, how, does it, how do you get the money into a public school system? How do you get the teaching? How do you, what do you, the fleshing out that plan to create equal opportunity in all of its various forms is the most pressing thing to do. And so I'm, you know, that is that. The opportunity, the most important one you're kind of implying is the earlier, the better. Sort of like opportunity to education. So in the early development of a human being, is when you should have the equal opportunities. That's the most important. Right. In the first phase of your life, which goes from birth until you're on your own and you're an adult and you're now out there and you deal with early childhood development, okay, and you take the brain and you say, what's important? The child care, okay, like the, uh, it, it makes a world of difference, for example, if you have good parents who are trying to think about in instilling the stability in a non-traumatic environment to provide them. So I would say the good guidance that normally comes from parents and the good education that they're receiving um, are you know, the most important things in that person's development. The ability to be able to be prepared to go out there and then to go into a market that's an equal opportunity job market to be able to then go into that kind of market is a system that creates not only fairness, anything else is not fair, and then in addition to that, it also is a more effective economic system because the consequences of not doing that are, to a society are devastating. If you look at what the difference in outcomes for somebody who completes high school or doesn't complete high school, or does each one of those states changes. Mm -hmm. And you look at what that means in terms of their costs to society, not only themselves, but their cost and incarceration costs and, and, and crimes and all of those things. 
it's economically better for the society and it's fairer if they can compl- if they can get those particular things once they have those things then you move on to other things but yes from birth all the way through that process anything less than that is um bad is a tragedy and and so on so that's what i that's yeah those are the things that i'm estimating and I, so my uh, my what I would want above all else is to provide that. So with that in mind, now we'll talk about universal basic income. <laughs> Start with that. Okay. Now we can talk about you. Well, pay, right? right, because you have to have that. Yes. Now the question is, what's the best way to provide that? Yes. Okay. So when I look at UBI, I really think is what is going to happen with that thousand dollars? Okay. And will that $1,000 come from another program? Does that come from an early childhood developmental program? Who are you giving the $1,000 to? And what will they do for that Mm $1,000? I mean, like my reaction would be, I think it's a great thing that everybody should have almost $1,000 in their bank and so on. But when do they get to make decisions or who's the parent? A lot of pit times you can give $1,000 to somebody and it could have a negative result. It can have, you know, they can use that money detrimentally, not just productively. And if that money's coming away from some of those other things that are going to produce the things I want and you're shifted to, um, let's say, to come in and give a check, doesn't mean its outcomes are going to be good in providing those things that I think are so fundamental important. If it was just everybody can have $1,000 and use it, so when the time comes (laughs) and use it well, that would be really, really good because it's almost like everybody you'd wish, everybody could have $1,000 worth of wiggle room in their lives. Okay, and I, I, I think that would be great. I, I love that. But we're, I want to make sure that these other things that are taken care of. So if it comes out of that budget, and um, you know, I don't want it to come out of that budget that's going to be doing those things. And I, you know, so yeah. you have to figure it out. And you have a certain skepticism that human nature will use, may not always, in fact, frequently may not use that thousand dollars for the optimal to support the optimal trajectory. Some will and some won't. won't. One of the big advantages of universal basic income is that um, if you put it in the hands, let's say, of parents who know how to do the right things and make the right choices for their children because they're responsible and you say, I'm going to give them a $1,000 wiggle room to use for the benefit of their children. Wow, that sounds great. If you put it in the hands of, let's say, um, an alcoholic or drug-addicted parent who is not making those choices well for their children. And what they do is they take that $1,000 and they don't use it well, then that's gonna produce more harm than good. Well put, you're, if I may say so, one of the richest people in the world. So you're a good person to ask, does money buy happiness? No, it's been shown that um, between, um, once you get over a basic level of income, so that you can take care of the pain and you know you can health and whatever there's no correlation between the level of happiness that one has and the level of money that one has the, the that would thing that has the highest correlation is quality relationships with others community if you look at surveys of these things across all surveys and all societies it's a, if, um, a sense of community and per, interpersonal relationships. That is not in any way correlated with money. 
you can go down to native tribes and you know very poor places or you can go in all different communities and so they have the opportunity to have that i'm very lucky in that i started with nothing so i had the full range i can tell you i, I you know by not having money but, but, but and then having quite a lot of money and i you know i did that in the right order okay. so you started from nothing in long island yeah and my dad was a jazz musician but i, I but yeah. i had all really that i needed because i had two parents who loved me and took good care of me and i went to a public school that was a good public school and basically you know that you, you don't need much more than that in order to that's the equal opportunity part anyway what i'm saying is no i experienced the range and uh, and there are many studies on the answer to your question no money does not bring happiness Pr- it, bring money gives you an ability to make choices does it get in the way in any way of forming those deep meaningful relationships it can there are lots of ways that it makes negative that's one of them it could stand in the way of that yes okay but i could almost list the ways that it could stand it could be a problem yeah what does it buy so if you can elaborate you mentioned a, a bit of freedom at the most fundamental level it doesn't take a whole lot but it de- takes enough that um you can take care of your yourself and your family to be able to learn do the basics of have the relationships have health care the basics of those types of things you know you can cover the patients and then to have maybe enough security but maybe not too much security <laughs> that's right that yeah. that you um uh, uh, essentially are okay okay that is that's really good yeah. and you don't that's what a, that's what money will get you and everything else is uh, could go either way there's well no, no there's with- more there's more. Okay. Then beyond that, what it then starts to do, that's the most important thing. Yes. But beyond that, what it starts to, starts to do is to help to make your dreams happen in various ways. Mm. Okay. So, for example, now I, I uh, you know, like in my case, it's a, those dreams might not be just my own dreams. They're, they're impact on others' dreams. Mm. Okay. So uh, um, my own dreams might be, um, I don't know, I can pass along these, at my stage in life, I can pass along these principles to you and I can give those things, or I can um, do whatever, I can go on an adventure, I can uh, start a business, I can do those other things, be productive, I can Mm self-actualize in ways that might be not possible otherwise. Uh, so that's that's my own belief and then in a du- and i can also help others i mean this is you know to the extent when you get older and with time and whatever very you start to feel connected spiritual spirituality that's what i'm referring to you can start to have an effect on others that's beneficial and so on gives you the ability i could tell you that um pe- people who are very wealthy who have that uh, feel that they don't have enough money bill gates mm-hmm. will feel almost broke because relative to the things he'd like to accomplish through the Gates Foundation and things like that, you know, oh my God, he doesn't have enough money to accomplish the things he wishes for. But those things are not, you know, they're not the most fundamental things. So, 
I think that people sometimes think money has value. Money doesn't have value. Money is, like you say, just a medium of exchange at a store all the well. <laughs> and so what you have yeah. to say is, what is it that you're going to buy? Now, there are other people who get their gratification in ways that are different from me. But I think in many cases, let's say somebody who used money to have a status symbol. I, what, what, what would I say? Or that, that, that's probably unhealthy. But then I don't know, somebody who says, um, I love a, a great, gorgeous painting. Mm-hmm. And it's going to cost lots of money. In my priorities, I, I, I can't. I can't get there. Yeah. But um, it, but that doesn't mean I don't. Who am I to judge others right. in terms of, let's say, their element of the freedom to do those things? So it's a little bit complicated. But by and large, that you know, that's my view on money and wealth. So let me ask you in terms of the idea of um, so m- much of your passions in life has been through something you might be able to call work. Alan Watts has this quote. He said that the the real key to life, secret to life is to be completely engaged with what you're doing in the here and now. And instead of calling it work, realize it is play. So I'd like to ask, what is the role of work in your life's journey or in a life's journey? And what do you think about this modern idea of kind of separating work and work-life balance? I have a principle that I believe in is make your work and your passion the same thing. Okay. Okay. So that's similar view. Uh, 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 In other words, if you can make your work and your passion, it's just going to work out great. And then, of course, people have different purposes of work. And I don't want to be theoretical about that. People have to take care of their family. So money at a certain point is um, the base is an important component of that work so you look beyond that what do you what is the money going to get you and what are you trying to achieve but the most important thing i agree is meaningful work and meaningful relationships like if you can get into the thing that your your mission that you're on and you are excited about that mission that you're on and then you can do that with people who you have the meaningful relationships mm-hmm. with. You have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. I mean, that is fabulous for most people. And it seems that many people struggle to get there, not out of, um, not necessarily because they're constrained by the fact that they have the financial constraints of having to uh, provide for their family and so on, but it's, I mean, mo- you know, this idea is out there that there needs to be a work-life balance, which means that most people, we're going to return to the same thing as most doesn't mean optimal, but most people seem to not be doing their life's passion, not be, not unifying work and passion. Why do you think that is? is th- well, the work-life balance, there's a life arc that you go through. Mm-hmm. Starts at zero and ends somewhere in the vicinity of 80. And there was a phase, and there's a, and you could look at the different degrees of happiness that happen in those phases. I can go through that if that was interesting, but we don't yeah. have time probably for it. But you get in the part of the life, the, the that part of the life which has the lowest level of happiness is age forty-five to fifty-five, mm-hmm. and 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 because as you move into 
this second phase of your life. Now, the first phase of your life is when you're learning dependent on others. Second phase of your life is when you're working and others are dependent on you and you're trying to be successful. And in that phase of one's life, you encounter the work-life balance challenge because you're trying to be successful at work and successful at parenting and successful and successful in all those things that take your demand. And they get into that, and I understand that problem in the work-life balance. The issue is primarily to know how to approach that, okay? So um, I, I understand it's stressful, it produces stress, and it produces bad results, and it produces the lowest level of happiness in one's life. It's interesting. As you get later in life, the levels of happiness rise, and the highest level of happiness is between ages 70 and 80, which is interesting <laughs> for other reasons. But in that spot, I want, and, that, and, and the key to work-life balance is to realize and to learn how to get more out of an hour of life. Okay, because an hour of of work, what people are thinking is that they have to make a choice between one thing and another, and of course they, they do, but they don't realize that if they develop the skill to get um, a lot more out of an hour, it's the equivalent of having many more hours in your life. And so, you know, that's why in the book Principles, I try to go into, okay, now how can you get a lot more out of uh, out of an hour? That allows you to get more life into your life and it reduces the work-life balance. And that's the primary struggle in that 35 to 45. If you could linger on that, so what are the ups and downs of life in terms of happiness in general and perhaps in your own life? when you look back at the moments, the peaks? It's pretty pretty much the same pattern. Early in one's life is uh, tends to be a very happy period all the way up, and 16 is like a really great happy, you know, I think, uh, like myself, you, you start to get elements of freedom, you get your driver's license, you, yeah. whatever, but uh, 16 is, is there. Um, junior year in high school quite often could be a stressful period to try to get thinking about the high school. Yeah. You go into college, tends to be very high happiness, generally speaking. Freedom. And then t- freedom, yeah, friendships, yeah. all of that. Freedom is a big thing. And then you, um, and then 20, uh, 23 is a peak point kind of in, in happiness, mm-hmm. that freedom. Then sequentially, one has a great time, they date, they go out and so on, and you uh, find the love of your life, you begin to develop a family. And then with that, as time happens, you have more of your work-life balance challenges that come and your responsibilities. And then as you get there in that mid part of your life, that is the most, that is the biggest struggle. Yes. Chances are you will crash in that period of time. You know, you'll have you'll, you'll have your series of failures. That's the, that's that. That's when you go into the abyss. You learn. You hopefully um, learn from those mistakes. You have a metamorphosis. Yeah. You come out. You change. You ho- hopefully become better, and you take more responsibilities and so on. And then when you get to the later part, as you are starting to approach the transition uh, in that. Uh, late part of the second phase of your life before you go into the third phase of your life. Second phase is you're working and trying to be successful. Mm-hmm. Third phase of your life is you want people to be successful without you. 
Okay. Yes. You want your kids to be successful without you because when you're at that phase, they're at making their transition from the first phase to the second phase, and they're trying to be successful, and you want them to be successful without you. And you have your parents are gone, and then you have freedom, and then you have freedom again, and that with that freedom, and then you have these. History has shown with this: you have friendships, you have perspective on life, you have different things, and that's one of the reasons that that later part of the life can be real. It, on average, actually, it's the highest. Very interesting thing: if they they there are surveys and say, how good do you look, and how good do you feel, mm-hmm. and and at, that's the highest survey. The person now they're not looking the best, yeah, <laughs> and they're not feeling the best, yeah. right? Maybe it's thirty-five that yeah. they're actually looking the best yeah. and feeling the best, but they rank the highest at that point. Survey results of being the highest that's so in that seventy to eighty period of time because it has to do with an attitude on life. Then you start to have grandkids. Oh, grandkids are great, and you start to experience that transition well. So that's what the arc of life pretty much looks like, and um, and I'm experiencing it. You know, that's <laughs> you've lived it. When you meditate, we're all human. We're all mortal. When you meditate at, uh, on your own mortality, having achieved a lot of success on whatever dimension, what do you think is the meaning of it all? The meaning of our short existence on Earth as human beings. I think that evolution is the greatest force of the universe and that we're all tiny bits of an evolutionary type of process where it's just matter and machines that go through time and that we all have a deeply embedded inclination to evolve and contribute to evolution. So I think it's to personally evolve and contribute to evolution. I could have predicted you would answer that way. It's brilliant and exactly right. And I think we've said it before, but I'll say it again. You have a lot of incredible videos out there that people should definitely watch. I don't say this often. I mean, it's literally the best spend of time. And in terms of reading principles and reading basically anything you write on LinkedIn and so on, is a really good use of time. It's a lot of light bulb moments, a lot of transformative ideas in there. So, Ray, thank you so much. It's been an honor. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure for me too. I'm I'm happy to hear it's of use to you and others. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Ray Dalio. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, Cash App. Download it, use code LEXPODCAST. You'll get $10 and $10 will go to FIRST a STEM education nonprofit that inspires hundreds of thousands of young minds to learn and to dream of engineering our future. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter. Finally, closing words of advice from Ray Dalio. Pain plus reflection equals progress. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.